<laughs> uh, well, all right. You know, we're just going to jump in this morning. We've been making our way through Acts chapter 18. Bob stepped in last week and, and, and brought us into Galatians. But, uh, and thank you so much for doing that, Bob, wherever you are. I think he's actually, I think he's in class. Um, and it was awesome. But we've been starting, we had just started a series through Acts chapter 18. Um, and we left off two weeks ago, right, uh, right in the middle of kind of some drama happening in the city of Corinth as Paul was there. So we're, I'm just going to jump right in. We're going to pick right up where we left off, okay? So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, if you want to follow along. There are Bibles in front of you now. We have pew Bibles. Except I told one of the youth we have pew Bibles and said, well, we don't have pews. So how is it that we have pew Bibles? And I said, you're right. They're not pew Bibles. They're cha- we have chair Bibles. If you'd like a chair Bible, they're right in front of you. Um, and you can follow along in Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 12. Okay, here we go. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. All right, so, so we, we find Paul right where we left him uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 18. Uh, he's in the city of Corinth, which is a large city in modern-day Greece. I think I actually have a map up here. Yes, yeah, so it's in the upper left-hand corner there. Um, that's where, where Corinth is. Um, in a large city in, in what we now know as, as Greece. And at this point, uh, Paul has been in Corinth for a long time. He's been there for 18 months uh, which is surprising given, like, the reaction he had when he first got into town, into Corinth. Um, right when he got there, and we talked about this last week, many of, of the religious Jews, whom he went around preaching the gospel to, they had really opposed him. Um, and we saw, like, like two weeks ago, um, God told him in a dream, though, he reassured him in a dream that despite all the opposition, everything was going to be okay. He said in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, Paul, uh, God says to Paul in a dream, don't be afraid. But keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. Right? So, so, so Paul has this assurance, this dream from the Lord, that he can stay in Corinth despite all the opposition, um, and it's going to be okay. And so um, after 18 months of him just being there and the opposition being fierce to the gospel, the things are kind of culminating here. And the, the Jewish uh, religious leaders are really trying to do something about Paul. They're sick of him. And so they, so they gather him up. They, they kind of grab him. And they bring him to the, the Roman governor, a person named Gallio. And he, they bring him before Gallio. And they basically said, you need to put this guy on trial because he's doing something that is really offensive to us. He is teaching people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. So they don't really have the power to do anything about it. They've, they've done everything they could to, to, go, to get Paul out of there. So they bring him to the Roman authorities and say, you need to deal with this. Because um, he's, he's doing something that is against our religious law. And we'll see his reaction in a little bit. But I think just thinking about that a, a, a little bit first. Uh, it's not like they were entirely wrong about what Paul was doing. He, he was teaching uh, something that was very uh, offensive to them. He was teaching people to worship God in a way that is contrary, at least to their understanding of what God's law was like. We talked about that a, a, a few weeks ago. Um, he had an offensive mes- message. It was offensive, especially to religious Jews, because 
Paul was deliberately um, trying to get them to reconsider what they believed that God was teaching them to do, what they believed that God uh, was requiring of them in terms of worshiping him. See, see the, these religious Jews believed that worshiping God was a very serious business, and actually Paul would probably agree it is a very serious business. And they believed that in order to worship God, they needed to carefully observe the laws that had been given through Moses. There was, there was a process, there was a way, there was a right way to approach God. And it wasn't an entirely unreasonable thing to believe, because Israel's whole history, their, their, their religious text, what we now have as, as the Old Testament, they would have studied this, this law of God. That's what they would have called the law, is the Old Testament, the teachings um, that they, they had that they believed about how they were supposed to interact as people with God. Their whole history as a people since Moses was tied up in this idea of a covenant. They had a, a relationship with God based on a set of rules laid out by Moses. And they believed that it was their job to uphold these rules and, and, and obey um, as a people, to take on their identity in these rules and express, express their identity as people of God by, by, by obedience to these, to these laws. And that if they did that, then God was going to, to um, care for them. He was going to love them, right? I have a little visual. If we want to think of their kind of mindsets, right? This is, and I'm limited by the, uh, the little emojis within uh, you know, Microsoft Word. So I just made them work. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're the best ones, but I'm not going to go searching around the internet for, for little emojis, right? So they believed that the key to get into God's presence was that they should keep the law. If, if they kept the law the right way, they could be in God's presence, and then they could worship him in the right way. And if they worshiped him in the right way, then God would finally love them. Then God would finally care for them, parentheses, as long as they didn't mess up again, as long as they kept keeping the law. So they took this as a really serious thing. They believed that the law, that obedience to God was their way back to God, the key into the presence of God. And by keeping the law, they could open the door to God and that he would come and finally save them, finally love them, finally uphold his end of the covenant, his end of the agreement that they had. But Paul, who is himself a very religious Jew, who understands the Old Testament extremely well, he argued among them that they actually were misunderstanding what God was asking them for. He had a different take on worship and on the law. He argued that God actually already loved them. That God had affection for them. He had called them out. God loves you already. And it's not like you have to find the key in obedience. Actually, he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's sent to save. That Jesus is the key. He is the obedient one. He does what you can't do. He has kept the law and fulfilled it, filled it on your behalf. And he's demonstrated his love for you so sufficiently and so clearly that he died on a cross to fulfill every obligation of the law so that we, both Jew and non-Jew, can have a life with God, not on the basis of obedience, but on the basis of faith. Faith comes first in his formulation, in his understanding of the gospel. So, so to Paul, his idea about what worship is, it's about faith, not law. The key is faith, faith in Jesus, 
Faith in what Jesus has done. Faith in the fact that Jesus has paid the price for all of our sin and all of our separation, that he's been the obedient one, that he's the one who has done all the law-keeping necessary, and we just put our faith in him. And that was a pretty offensive message. I mean, Jesus made this clear throughout his ministry. Uh, John, John 10, 7 through 9, Jesus makes it clear that he's the one through whom we can enter into God's presence. He says, truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. In this instance, the people of Israel or people who want to come into God's presence are the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus presents himself as, and faith in him as the way into God's presence, to find pasture, to be able to go in and out, to live a life in the presence of God. And what Paul comes to understand is that what God wants is not law-keeping, we don't need to keep all the law in order to, to make God happy. That's not the key. That's not the way in. There is a key. Jesus' purpose, the reason why he took on flesh, that he lived among people, that he died and was resurrected, he did all that to unlock the door so that we might come in and know God and make a way that anyone could know and have a relationship with God through Jesus. And what Paul teaches is a truly offensive message. And that is that the law, keeping of the law, is actually not the way to God. It's not the way to worship. Faith in Jesus Christ is actually the way to God. When we come by faith, when we, when we receive forgiveness and adoption in Jesus, then we are able to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's a pretty distinct message. And Paul would make it clear, if we, if we read any of like, like Paul's other letters, like, like the, for instance in Galatians 5, he makes it super clear. Galatians 5, 18, I love it. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Two, people who believe that their identity is about keeping the law, this is a very offensive message. He's making it clear that spiritual adoption, faith in Jesus Christ puts you out of, basically kills you to the law. You no longer have an obligation to it. You aren't under the law anymore. Instead, you're being led by the Spirit. There's a spiritual work happening when we have and put our faith in Jesus. And Paul is making that super clear. And it is offensive to those who believe that law is the way into the presence of God. It, it, it is a very distinct message. But it's funny because it messes with the Jewish idea of how we would become transformed people. See, in, in the Jewish mentalities, we obey the law. We do right things, and so we become the right kinds of people who can worship God. Because God is holy, and God is righteous. And how could unrighteous, unholy people come into his presence and worship him? He's, he's holy. He's beautiful. We have to keep law in order to just be into his presence. But what Paul does is he flops it on its head. He says, no, God, God loves you, and he makes a way. He sees you in your unholiness, and he's provided a way to make you holy. It's not like God just doesn't care about holiness anymore, doesn't care about righteousness anymore, doesn't care about uh, living a transformative life anymore. He says, no, I'm just going to make it so that you can have a transformed heart by the power of the Spirit, so that the fruit of the Spirit will be working its way out in your life, not your effort, 
Not your earning, not your trying to, to impress God. Instead, you're just going to receive from God love, acceptance, forgiveness, and that is going to overflow into this transformed life that you're trying to seek by law. Paul makes it clear. He goes on in Galatians 5.22. When the Spirit's working in you, then the fruit of the Spirit is coming out, and that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. His point is that the law is, this is like law-keeping. If we would just live by these standards, if we would let the Holy Spirit do this work in our lives and let that come out of our life, we would be totally in conformity to the law. We would be righteous people. The law is not against such these things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that there is a way to worship God. It's not by earning my way in through being obedient. It's by receiving, by faith, grace, forgiveness, mercy, and then letting that work of the Spirit flow out of me so that I actually end up keeping the law, though I don't have this obligation to earn my way into the presence of God. All that the law couldn't do because of our own weakness and our own inability to obey it the Spirit begins to do in us as we just receive his grace and his kindness. The Spirit is mounting a peaceful invasion into the world, into Israel, into the, the Gentile world. And, just, um, and he's doing that, not, not calling people to do more or to do better or to shape up, but to just be renewed by the love and power and presence of God in Jesus Christ. He's really messing with the Jewish religious law-keeping paradigm, and people find it amazingly offensive to the point where they want the Roman governor to kill Paul. Let's pick up where we left off, right? Acts 18, I think it's verse uh, 14. Uh, as Paul was about to open his mouth, right, defending himself in front of Gallio, Gallio said to the Jews, Look, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about your words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. I mean, imagine what Paul's thinking. Standing in front of this governor, he's about to speak up and, I don't know, try to defend himself against these accusations. But, of course, in the, in the back of his mind, he's probably remembering the promise that God had made him, that he could just keep on speaking and that God wasn't going to let anything happen to him. And he's probably thinking about in this time, well, God, when are you going to show up? And before he can speak, before he can defend himself, Gallio just says, I'm really not interested in this question at all. I'm not going to do anything about this problem, you, you Jews. And it's about your internal disputes. I'm not interested. And it makes the religious Jews very upset, so much that they grab somebody, a guy, the uh, leader of the synagogue, who we can assume probably hung out with Paul. I don't know why else they would grab him and beat him. So, so they grab him and they beat him in front of Gallio in order to provoke Gallio to do something. But he just walks away. He doesn't care. He's not interested. And Paul's just sitting there, well, 
I guess I'm free to go. I guess I can go about my business. Your guys' hands are tied. And he's probably sitting there remembering, God said, God said that I would just go and I could speak and that he was going to watch over me. He's probably remembering how faithful God has been to him in this time. He goes on, uh, after staying some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria. Accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, he shaved his head there at Centria, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, uh, because of a vow that he had taken, and then they reached Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews, and when they asked him to stay for a while longer, he, he declined, but he said farewell, and he added, I'll come back to you again if God wills it, and then he set sail for Ephesus. On landing uh, from Ephesus. And on landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And spending some time there, he set out traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. So we see that Paul finally does decide that his time in Corinth is over, not because, not because he's been driven out, but because he's just, he's just done his work and it's time for him to head back home to Jerusalem. So he leaves from there. He goes to Chentrio, which is like a port south of, of uh, Corinth. And then he crosses uh, the Aegean Sea over to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And, and then he goes uh, to Caesarea, which is the port city closest to Jerusalem. So he's making his way back to Jerusalem, back to where he started out in this second missionary journey. And he spends some time there, and almost immediately he sets out again to, to, to go north, back up into Turkey through the land route, back up into what we typically think of as his third missionary journey. Every time he sets out from Jerusalem, it restarts a new missionary journey for Paul. But you'll notice something here, and it's a little strange, and it's kind of where I want to think about for, for, for the next, uh, the end of the sermon here. Um, he leaves Corinth, and he goes to this port city. And then he does something. He shaves his head because he's taken a vow. And that's a little strange, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little strange for two reasons. First, uh, because there are no more details than he shaved his head because he had taken an, an avow, a vow. And for us, vows are a little bit foreign, and we don't really understand what's going on here. Scholars have, have speculated that, that perhaps what Paul did was he had taken like a Nazarite vow which you can read about in Numbers 6 if you want to know what that is, but it was a, a tradition in Judaism um, about consecrating yourself to the Lord. And it would involve letting your hair grow out and avoiding certain things, very, very strictly observing certain rules and regulations. And so as he's leaving Corinth and God has protected him all of this time, he is, it, would, it would seem he's ending his vow shaving his head, right? He's let his hair grow out all this time, shaving his head. Again, speculation. Or some scholars would, would, would argue that maybe he's just beginning a vow. He's starting fresh and then going to begin a vow as, he, as he's making his way into Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's not clear from the text. So, so we just don't know. But maybe this, the strangest thing, right? Whether we don't know the circumstances or exactly what kind of vow he was doing. The strangest thing, I think, for us is that he would take a vow at all. Like, what is up with vow keeping? Uh, because 
he's going around telling religious Jews they don't have to do this whole law-keeping thing, right? He's saying we don't have to obey these rules. And in this way, you're thinking that by, by obeying these rules, you're making God happy or earning a way into his presence. And he's, his message is very clearly, that's not what it's all about. So, so what is this? How is he practicing this faith that he's proclaiming, this faith in Jesus? And how is that consistent with keeping of vows, making of vows? Isn't that the, sort of like the same sort of thing? He seems to be doing something that doesn't make sense. How is it that the same Paul who said in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, who, whose message is so stringently against law-keeping as a way of earning the favor of God, how is it that he's doing this vow-keeping thing? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it makes sense to, to, to us in the way we think about it. Or to ask the question differently. What does freedom of faith in Jesus mean for how I live my life? Because Paul understood freedom by the Spirit. He understood that really well. He preached it all over the place. What does that mean for how I live my life? How does that work its way out? If I'm set free from the law by faith in Jesus, does it matter how I live, really? Does it matter? I mean, we spent just a long time as a church going through this uh, Becoming Everyday Disciples series, right? And, and we've talked about six different things that we can do, six practices that we can do in order to put our discipleship to work. To, to, to express our discipleships to Jesus. Isn't that sort of, rhetorical question, isn't that sort of setting up a new set of rules, a new set of standards? Isn't that sort of like a new law? Isn't that sort of like, like these vows? Isn't, what is the connection between faith in Jesus and how we live? How do we reconcile those two things? I would say that if we look at Scripture, it becomes clear is that it becomes, it's very difficult to separate having faith in Jesus from living out a transformed life. Faith, faith, biblical faith, the faith that we're called to, has the effect of leading us into an inner transformation. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. If you look at Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30, this is a passage sometimes referred to as the golden chain. It says this, uh, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Scripture des describes, and Paul preached the, the effects of faith, and he preached that the effects of faith are really transformative. What you believe about Jesus, how you receive and, and express your faith, put your faith in his, in, and confidence in what he's done, actually will lead you to a transformed life. If you have faith in Jesus, Jesus is going to do a work in your life. If you step into faith, if you respond to the call of life in Jesus Christ, you will be, like it says here in Romans 8, justified, glorified, made into, formed into the image of his son. You're called according to his purpose. So that means faith will lead inevitably over time to a transformed life. It might take time. 
It might uh, feel like a struggle along the way. But Paul makes it clear, those who are called to faith are being equipped and transformed over time. And that might seem a bit of a mystery, and we might struggle to understand what about that is my, uh, in, how, how involved do I need to be in that? And that, that's, that's truly like a question that we need to consider. But just like we talked about with Galatians 5, Paul makes it clear, if you live by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be working its way out in your life. These are, these are promises that God has made. They might not always make sense to us, but we need to be clear about them, that God is doing a work in you. If we stand firm in faith and we continue to rest in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will be doing this work within us. I like how uh, Jonathan Edwards, 18th century theologian who kind of was instrumental in bringing about the first great awakening here in America, he says this, practice is the aim of that eternal election which is the first ground of the bestowment of all true grace. There's some old language there. Don't get too caught up in it. Good practice is not the ground of election, but Christian practice is the scope and end of election. In other words, like what we do, it's not, that's not the basis that we're, that we're saved by, but it will be working its way out in our life over time. Though God does not elect men or women because he foresees that they will live holy, yet he elects them that they may live holy. In other words, you're not chosen by God, called in God, because God knows you're going to be holy, but your call is to live and let faith work its way out in your life. To be a person of faith is to, be, is to let God transform you from the inside out. And to stand in the power of his work. To be called to live a holy life. But what does that look like? I mean, that's really the question. What does it look like? I think, I think what we see is Paul is living that out. Does that mean that I'm supposed to work really hard and do well? And isn't that just keeping the law? What's the difference? I think the difference is standing on the promises of God. Paul makes clear that what Jesus has done changes things for us. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have promises from God, and we believe them by faith, and we stand in them by faith, and we need to be confident of them by faith. Christians have to trust the work of Jesus, and it's, it, is, it is work to trust, but it's not work that we earn our way in, but it is work that we just, like, like just continue to believe and have faith in what Jesus has done. We trust the effective love of God. We trust that he has forgiven us, that he's made a way for us to have a life with God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he has done. We live with him under a new law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We put away this old law, the law of sin and death, where we have to earn our way into the presence of God, but we do, we have to accept that we have something new going on within us. We now have the Spirit of God working its way out in our lives, and we continue to trust in that. The law of sin and death, 
of guilt and shame. We've left that behind. We have to leave shame and guilt and, 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 and staying, uh, like, like beating ourselves up for all of our failures behind. That's the old way, the law of sin and death. We push that stuff out. And instead we believe this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We come to believe and have confidence that God's grace, his forgiveness, his calling is going to do all the work and I just need to keep trusting in him. And that means when I fail, instead of going back to the old way where I said, oh, God must be so mad at me. God must hate me. God doesn't want anything to do with me because I'm such a loser. When we fail, we need to say no. Like, that was the old me. I used to think that was true because I was under the law of condemnation. I was under the law of sin and death. I did wrong. God hates me. He just wants me out of his presence. I have a new law, a new confidence because of what Jesus has done. I have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So when I fail, I don't go back to this place of, oh, God hates me. I remember actually, no, God loves me. And he knew that I would fail. And he knew that I would struggle with this thing. And what I need is not to just like earn my way into his presence. What I need is to remind myself that it's true that he's already opened the door. The key has been unlocked. He's opened the door and I can go right in to the presence of God unashamed because I'm not there. I didn't earn my way in and so I don't have to earn my right to stay in. I'm there because Jesus died and he forgave me and so I can just stand in the presence of God and I can say, I realize I've done wrong, but I look towards and I am confident of the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so though I fail, and though I mess up, God, I accept your forgiveness and I look to your strength. And I'm confident that you've said that you're going to bring about a transformed life within me. And so I stand in this new law. I have the spirit within me because of what Jesus has done. And so I can repent Repent of trying to earn my way into God and put my confidence in what God has done on the cross and I can just stand in his grace and remind myself over and over again when I fail that I can go back because Jesus has made a way. John Webster, um, the theologian, says this. I'm just going to read it slow, okay? Jesus Christ is the holy one who makes holy. In the movement of his being as son and word made flesh, in his person and mission as the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ sanctifies. By his existence and action, by the fact that he is the one whom the Father has consecrated, Jesus Christ makes holy. He does not only acquit, but in acquitting, he consecrates, renewing human, humankind's vocation to be holy before God. He sanctifies because as the one who assumes human nature, he is in our place and acts in our place, making us not merely potentially, but actually holy and consecrated to God. 
God made him our sanctification. To be a saint is to have one's holiness in Christ Jesus. And so whatever I do, when I fail, I just have to remind myself, I didn't make my way into the presence of God because I did well. My failure is right where I've always been. My failure proves to me that I need to trust the power of the Spirit all the more. I have access by faith into the grace of God because of what Jesus did, and that will never change. And so when I feel the law of condemnation, when I feel here, here Satan tempting me to believe that I am just, God doesn't care about me, he doesn't love me, I remind myself that yes, he does, he proved it to me by dying on a cross. And so I am holy and set apart, and I am God's because Jesus has made me his. And so I can let my failures just wash over me. And I can stand in the confidence that he's doing a work. It's like, you know, you get on a slide. I haven't done that in a while. You probably haven't either. Uh, but when you get on a slide, you jump in. And unless you try really hard, you get to the bottom. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it starts to work out all these difficulties. It's going to lead to a transformed life eventually. If we would just continue on in the process of faith, we'll let God's work play out in our lives. And all that we have to do is just keep turning and keep remembering the grace that has made it possible. We need to keep remembering the consecrating, renewing, holy-making work of the Spirit within you. So let's bring it back to the question. What is Paul doing with this avow business? He's clearly, I mean, just it, it wouldn't make sense, it wouldn't be consistent with his teaching. He's not earning favor with God. He's not trying to impress God. He's living in the freedom that God has bought him. He, he's actually remembering the faithfulness of God. Look, like I said, we, we, we can't know exactly what the nature of this vow was, but we can speculate. And my guess is that from the time that God told him, don't be afraid, I'm going to get you out of here. You just keep being faithful, you keep preaching the gospel, you keep telling, I'm with you. My guess is that since that time, he'd just been letting his hair grow out. Just to remind him, just, just, just understanding, reminding himself of the promises that God had made to him. Letting everybody see it, letting it be a daily reminder, no, God has made a promise. He's going to bring it to completion. I'm going to get out of here alive because God has spoken it. He said it would be true. And he'd been there for 18 months surrounded by people who want to kill him, want to bring him before the governor and, and, and have the governor kill him, want to, want to drive him out of town. And he was, no doubt, I would be, finding himself in need of reminders of what God has promised to him. And so I think this vow is just an expression of his confidence that God was going to deliver him and an expression of his need to, to remember that that's true. Man, the greatest need you have as a Christian is not to do more or be go to this program or do this other thing. It's to remember what Jesus Christ has promised you is true. 
That's the hardest part about being a Christian, is it's so easy to go back to, by instinct, feeling condemned, feeling like God is angry with me. It's hard work to remember, no, Jesus Christ has paid the price, and he's called me, and he will deal with all this stuff. He will sustain me. Paul was not trying to prove himself to God in, in this vow. We don't need to prove ourselves to, to God, but we need to prove God to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of what God says is true. I think what Paul's doing in this vow keeping is he is confronting his own tendency to be faithless, right? I think even Paul would have struggled with this. And I certainly do. I don't know about you, but I forget. I forget all the time that I don't get to worship God because I'm so great. I get to worship God because he's so great. And he's forgiven me. And it's only because of that that I get to have anything to do with him. It is hard to believe the gospel sometimes. It's hard to believe that God is faithful when you're surrounded by enemies. It's hard to believe that God will, in fact, transform you when you feel like a constant failure. It's hard to believe God cares for you when you are hurting and it feels like people hate you and are mad at you. It's hard to be on fire for the Lord and feel like, man, my life with Jesus is so good when you're just distractible. But the work that we're called to is the work of remembering, of just remembering what Jesus has done and understanding that it is enough. It is enough to remember and put my confidence and faith in Jesus. See, Paul took a vow not to earn the favor of God, but to remind himself of the faithfulness of God, to mark it. And so, as the worship team comes back up, just, just thinking about this, think about this for us. Why do we want to be everyday disciples? Come on, like, why do I want to bless people, eat with them? Why do I want to confess my sin? Why do I want to open my mouth and tell people about Jesus? Why do I want to spend time to meet with God? Why do I want to examine my life and, 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 and uh, look for the grace of God in it? These are just habits. They're not things that are going to impress God. God doesn't need to be impressed. Jesus Christ did all the work, all that we need. He completed everything. He supplied everything by his faithfulness. But these are things, and we can and should do specific things to express our discipleship to Jesus and our love to Jesus so that we will deal with our own selves and deal with our own doubt and deal with the, 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 the distraction that we have. We can, we can have ways of, of practicing and leaning into the promises of God. And, and we should live out the calling that we have to become transformed people, to be people who bless like God blesses, to be people who, who welcome others in like, like, like God has welcomed us in, to be people who are taking time to press into and meet with God because he's done so much to make it clear that he loves us, he cares for us. You don't need to prove yourself to God, but you do need to, if you want to be, if you want to have a satisfying Christian life, if you want to have a, a joyful Christian life, take some things 
and, and take the promises of God and just live into them. Because that's what Paul's doing here. He's living into the promises of God, reminding himself of what's true, and wanting to experience the faithfulness of God in his everyday life. I think if you, if you, you take up some of these things, whether it be these, these practices or, or just, just take up a, a prayer life, and take up a life of, of, just, of, just, of just seeking after God, you're going to experience God's goodness. That's what Paul was, was, was after. He wants to know and remind himself of the faithfulness of God. He wants to experience it so he can say, see how faithful God has been. So that's the invitation I want to leave you with. Um, but before we do that, I just want to tell you, tell you something. I just want to pray, pray for us, okay? So I'm going to pray for us, and I want you, can we just like bow our heads for a second? I just want to remind you of what's true. Lord, I thank you so much for this, this congregation of people, Lord. Lord, how easy it is to just wander through life, um, Lord, and, and forget what's important. But Lord, I pray you would uh, remind us of what is true, of what you've done. Lord, if anyone is here, and if it's you, you know, you can just think about this, bearing um, condemnation, if you feel guilty, if you feel ashamed of yourself, you can take that shame and guilt and put it at the foot of the cross. You can have forgiveness and confidence of forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. Lord, would you... Let us put those things away. Put our shame and our guilt and our trying to prove ourselves to you away, Lord. Lord, would you remind us of how faithful you've been. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us. God, that you would walk with us. Even at this moment, Lord, you would uh, fill us with a confidence to know that your grace is sufficient. And that you're calling us to freedom and life. Lord, you're calling us to desire the things of God. Lord, we don't need to, to earn favor. We have favor, Lord, and we're invited to live a transformed life. Holy Spirit, would you remind us that that's true? Lord, would you build us up? Would you empower us? Would you have us be people who are just um, seeing your faithfulness, reminding ourselves that it's true, Lord, and just celebrating your goodness day to day, Lord? Would you fill us with joy, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's